everyone, this is Will from Charlotte, North Carolina, and welcome to this brand new and exciting episode of The Missing Piece. While the world continues to follow the ongoing tension and the even intense conflict between Russia and Ukraine, in this episode, we need to address another country continue to make the noises not only in the continent of Asia, but also across the world. For so long, the country of North Korea routinely demands the end of the United States, what we called hostile policy, as a necessary precondition for a treaty. While the U.S. has resisted taking such a step without concrete evidence of denuclearization. And we know that when President Trump was in the White House, the leader of Kim Jong-un and President Trump formally met twice regarding this critical and strategic collaboration between the countries, especially on the matter of denuclearization. But fast forward. Our current administration in the U.S. has now started dialogue with the leader in the North Korea. So again, what the future holds between those two countries seems so uncertain and unknown to the rest of the world. So that's why, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite our Professor Mark. And again, um, if you follow our show, we know that Professor Mark teaches in political science and including international relations, comparative politics, and his current research interests, including China, especially domestic and international politics, and East Asia, the countries such as Japan, Korea, Southeast Asia, and etc. So that's why today, by having Professor Mark on the show, we are going to talk about so many issues regarding the country of North Korea, and also the tension continue in Ukraine and more in the country of France. Professor Mark, and welcome back to The Missing Piece. Thank you, Will. It's great to be back. Professor Mark, let's get started with the first question. Again, as I had it in the intro, you know, when the world continues to follow the ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine, the country of North Korea cannot be ignored at this moment. And if I uh, calculate it right and based on the uh, research, this year, North Korea has already tested nine missiles. So the first basic question, Professor Mark, to you is, what does that mean when we receive the message or from this political scientist's perspective, how should we understand such behavior from the country of North Korea? Thank you. Unfortunately, it looks like North Korea is following a well-established pattern. Whenever there's a new administration, either in the United States or in South Korea, Pyongyang demands attention. And this is the best and most visible way of doing so with these missile tests. With what's been happening uh, with the Ukraine conflict and with the international attention focused in many different parts of the world, it is very obvious that uh, the North Korean government is seeking to once again get attention and to bring forward the idea that it is still there. It has very significant security grievances and that it wants its voice heard in the region. Well, but Professor Mark, we know that, again, as I mentioned in the intro, that Back in the days when President Trump was in the White House and he actually met up with Kim Jong-un, who is the current leader of North Korea, twice and regarding the issue of denuclearization. And back in the days that everyone thought that was such a tremendous progress that made from the U.S. towards this foreign policy in North Korea. 
But so far, under the current administration, Joe Biden, we have not heard anything. I'm not taking anything for granted, but I think it's necessary to address or maybe time to ask the question, is U.S. ready to restart the dialogue with North Korea? Because we know in reality, this country cannot or should not be ignored whatsoever. Exactly. And one of the biggest problems that critics had with the Singapore agreement signed uh, between uh, Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump was that it was very big on style and very little substance. Mm. People were waiting after that agreement for a timetable, for some kind of schedule and some kind of roadmap towards a reduction of nuclear tensions. And that did not appear. So unfortunately, once the Biden administration began, things pretty much had reset to normal. That once again, North Korea was feeling ignored, that it felt that its security was being threatened, mm. and that it felt the need to essentially lash out and say, well, we are not going to be ignored as a security concern. So unfortunately, if the Biden government is going to revisit this issue, it's very much going to have to start from scratch. You know, back in the days, when we talk about the tension between North Korea and the U.S., and of course, that um, Professor Mark, you touch on as well, the going back to the country of South Korea. And this year, South Korea recently just elected a brand new leader. And again, despite the complication or the unknown background, but overall, the new person is ready to go. The person is ready to restart this dialogue with North Korea. But based on the current research that we have, the, the new uh, candidates or the new leader, it's not going to use the same or similar strategy as Moon Jae-in had before. So in other words, he thought uh, a President Moon was too, I quote, too soft in terms of dealing with North Korea. But meanwhile, the people on both sides or people from both countries, they were happy about this relationship between Moon and Un. So what would happen from your perspective if this new president is completely going to throw the foreign policy, I mean, the former policy away in, in, instead of establishing or building up a brand new policy? How does that change the relationship between those two countries? Well, first of all, the election that just took place in South Korea was very hard fought, and it took place at a time where there was a great deal of antipathy towards politics in general, a great deal of frustration in the South Korean public towards politicians, mm. towards the fact that, like the rest of the world, it has been a very difficult two years politically economically, and that there was definitely a sense that change was necessary. Mm. And the candidates for this year's election were not seen as promoting sufficient change by quite a few critics. So the Yun suk government now has to deal with that level of discontent on the domestic level. It is having to deal with a lot of questions about where uh, South Korea is going in terms of both its domestic and its international policies. And as you correctly point out, the situation with the North is not going away. And it is likely that the uh, Yun government is going to attempt a somewhat harder lifespan towards the North. It has already made uh, quite a few impressions that it is aligning much more closely to that of the United States as opposed to China. And it has also made it very clear that it wants to negotiate with the North through a greater position of strength. Mm. So how that is going to translate into actual dialogue, we're still waiting to see that. The Yun government is also beginning to develop a reputation for being very populist and being a little bit more kind of uh, set up towards dealing with um, domestic issues, especially dealing with the economy. So it's also a question as to what degree foreign policy will have the same level of visibility as opposed to the Moon administration before it. 
but you know when we talk about North Korea, and the first thing generally people think about is national security or international threat, because we know that regardless how this domestic economy uh, it looks in North Korea, and the, under the current administration, Kim Jong Un, he will never, or I mean, so far, um, he's not willing to give up this nuclear weapon development. So in other words, he's willing to sacrifice anything in order to enhance this project. Now, Professor Mark, you're the expert on uh, international security, but I want to address that. I mean, let's just say if we don't acknowledge this uh, issue or if South Korea or even any other countries cannot hold or cannot stop this progress, doesn't that give North Korea Kim Jong-un a lot more room to expand? I would say it does in regards to the fact that, as you point out, uh, Kim Jong-un has said that nuclear weapons in North Korea are not a bargaining chip. Now, he has made it very clear that he is willing to discuss ways of developing greater peace on the Korean Peninsula. And the very preliminary agreement that was uh, struck in Singapore with Donald Trump would seem to suggest that there was some room for dialogue. But again, though, the problem is to what level is um, Kim Jong-un willing to make mm. security concessions? potentially short of complete nuclear disarmament. And what he most wants, and this has not changed uh, either between Trump or Biden, what he most wants is some kind of written guarantee from the United States that North Korea will not be subject to regime change, similar to countries in the past, other countries in the past. So to get that would be very difficult for the Biden government to agree to at this point, because there's been so much criticism about uh, whether Biden has been too soft on China or too soft on security as a whole. There was a great deal of political capital lost because of the U.S. pullout from Afghanistan a few months ago. Mm. And now President Biden is under a considerable amount of pressure to continue to look tough towards Russia. So anything that looks conciliatory towards Pyongyang would be a very difficult sell at this point. And I believe that what Kim Jong-un is wanting to do is to continue to remind the Biden government that we're still here. Mm. You know, Professor Mark, this year, the year of 2022, it's also a significant year for the country of North Korea because it marked the 110th birth anniversary of Kim Il-sung, you know, who is the founder of the country and the late grandfather of Kim Jong-un. So which, again, people in this country, I remember back in the days when I was traveling through Pyongyang, I guess to be fair to say that people in North Korea still until today, they idolize this Kim's regime. So in other words, they believe that from the grandfather to the father until the current leader, including, you know, the hidden player, the sister, the entire dynasty build the entire country. So since this is a significant year for North Korea, how do you think that Kim Jong-un or the uh, administration is going to play out the relationship first with the neighboring country, China, and the second we know that, again, the, when the world continues to watch the tension between Russia and Ukraine, China has always been the center of the topic. So in other words, the whole world, especially the United States, is expecting China to put the hands on North Korea, to put the hands on Russia, so that, that the tension or the conflict will be, will be uh, avoided. Now, the question to you is, the second question is, how how fair would you think that for China to handle those two countries at the same time? Okay, very good questions. And I cannot underestimate the amount of difficulties facing the Chinese government between now and the end of this year. But I'll get to that in a moment. The first uh, the first question that you ask, 
Well, politically, North Korea is still trying to maintain, as you say, the idea of an unbroken line, the idea of a uh, family uh, family dynasty, the idea that North Korea is still very much on the right track economically, politically. But the fact is, we have a lot of mystery in terms of what is going on on the ground in Pyongyang. Kim Jong-un was out of sight for a very long period of time. There was a considerable number of rumors circulating about his health. There are many question marks about uh, whether or not North Korea was uh, very heavily affected by COVID. Mm. And we now have the question of if there is going to be an issue of secession, uh, succession, I should say, uh, how will that uh, affect the political dynasty going from here? And you cannot ask this question without also talking about the North Korean military and what their situation is, as well as the overall health of the North Korean economy, in light of the fact that there's still very much sanctions, the fact that China is still wary of supporting Pyongyang to a great degree. Mm. And we still have a question of what is going to be the future in terms of North Korean demands towards its nuclear policy. So there's a lot of questions that would need to be asked here. In regards to China, As I said at the onset, it is facing a very difficult situation domestically and internationally right now. China is about to enter into a very complicated party congress. Um, Xi Jinping has engaged in policies which have been very controversial, including Mm. most recently the common prosperity idea, the idea Mm. of redistribution of wealth. China has also been subject to a great deal of criticism towards its neutrality stance on the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And we're seeing reports coming out of Shanghai right now that the zero COVID policy is having a very strong adverse effect on the population there and potentially on the Chinese economy. So China is really not in a position to get involved in overseas adventures. So I imagine that its policy towards North Korea is please keep everything as quiet as possible, Mm. at least for now. Well, but one thing, Professor Mark, you know, as much as I do is China can't uh, uh, avoid being involved in the tension between North Korea and America or North Korea and South Korea, especially that's going back to uh, the newly elected leader in South Korea. Also, the the uh, um, the Wu administration is going to change the policy on China as well. So in other words, they believe that China today can be seen as a major competitor or China today uh, should be treated as a uh, as a rather competitive uh, you know um, economic partner um, not even a partner but as uh, economic uh, rivals but do you think it's fair that for the current leader in South Korea trying to say ask China to help but meanwhile to see China as this competitor yes you very well illustrated the paradox that have faced several South Korean administrations China is considered a very important economic partner for Seoul. That is very evident. But at the same time, we're seeing very significant changes in the overall security atmosphere in East Asia. We've seen the development of AUKUS, the Australia-UK-US deal. We have seen a lot of discussions about a so-called quad or security diamond Mm. that, again, the US is spearheading. This is putting other countries, including South Korea, into a very difficult position because ideally, Um, the South Korean government would not want to be in a position to choose a side overtly, that it would like to maintain a certain degree of relations with both powers, China and the U.S. That is becoming increasingly difficult. And as you also correctly point out, China is needed for any discussions regarding North Korea because China is still the major supporter of Pyongyang and still has a great deal of say over what the security structure in uh, Korea is going to look like from here on in. Very good. Now, 
Professor Mark, I want to move on to the ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine. You know, again, uh, we're going to bring China into the conversation in a second. More than a month later, the world continues to follow this war. You know, again, at the beginning, when everyone or even when the whole world believed that Vladimir Putin was bluffing in terms of invading the country of Ukraine. But a month later, casualties, you know, the innocent victims and refugee crisis and everything all of a sudden just took place and brought the entire world into chaos. So I want to ask you the question, Professor Mark, from your perspective, what is the ultimate goal that you believe Putin is trying to accomplish? And that's number one. And number two, we know that domestically, even in the country of Russia, people are, the Russian citizens are sick and tired of, you know, having this war or having this discussion or even the tension with the Ukraine. How bad do you think Putin can go down if the war stops tomorrow? Okay, excellent questions. And this is being heavily debated on several fronts. Putin made it very clear that he felt that any discussion about Ukraine becoming a NATO member was very much a step too far, that it would be directly damaging to Russian security. But that is only one part of a larger picture here. What Putin is also concerned about is the idea of Ukraine drifting even further towards the West, uh, politically, socially, economically, becoming part of the European Union, and essentially becoming a counterweight to the Russian or the Putin regime, which is undemocratic, authoritarian, and if anything, lurching towards the totalitarian. So the idea was that Ukraine was to be reabsorbed back into the Russian sphere of influence. And if necessary, and Putin made direct comments about the fact that Ukraine simply did not exist as an independent state, so essentially seeking to erase Ukraine. Now, what has happened over the past month or so is that we have seen that Russia's plans towards Ukraine simply could not hold up under actual battlefield conditions. There have been a series of mistakes, logistical issues made by the uh, Russian uh, military. Uh, an attempt to take the capital, Kiev, was completely unsuccessful. Mm. For all of Russia's talk about a stage one that has been completed, it is painfully obvious that there's serious deficiencies in the Russian military. This is not only being looked at very carefully by NATO, by the United States, but also very much by China, which has been trying to adapt a policy of neutrality, and I use that word in very big quotation marks, while trying to make sure that whatever happens, whatever the outcome is, China is still in an ideal position at the end of it all. Now, what is going to happen going back to Russia, the second part of your question? It would be very difficult now for Putin to stay in power uh, with a complete failure in Ukraine. So you can see now that the Russian government is trying to look for any and all victories, regardless of how hollow they are in battlefield operations. Now, one kind of endgame scenario that has been discussed is so-called palace coup mm. idea that finally someone under Putin finally loses their patience and instigates regime change. This, I would say, is not out of the realm of possibility, but it's also very unlikely because Putin has had two decades to remove any opposition that he may have encountered. And so far, there does not appear to be any outlet for any kind of dissent to appear, regardless of what is happening, not only in Ukraine, but in Russia. It is very obvious that there is a lot of dissent within Russia towards what is happening. People unhappy with the conflict, with the economic costs, and with the fact that even if the fighting were to stop tomorrow, Russia is going to be ostracized and economically destitute for a very long time.
Well, but Professor Mark, you know, again, as much as I agree with you that you mentioned that China would like to be in a neutral zone in terms of um, understanding or in terms of um, dealing with international crisis. And, but we know for decades that China has never been interested in meddling any international relationship. And given, you know, uh, the occasions or the reasons that China has made it crystal clear many times towards the world that we were uh, a Chinese belief that the, uh, the war between Russia and Ukraine, it's completely the issue between those two countries. And no other country should meddle and no other country should interfere this foreign uh, 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 conflict. But we know in reality, that does not play well. So in other words, no country is going to believe that China is going to stay away from this war. And so that's why the US President Joe Biden had a virtue meeting with the current leader Xi Jinping, you know, to talk about this issue. So again, I want to, uh, I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I want to go back to the question is, if China decides to stay away from this war, do you think it's a really advantageous for China or it's better for China to get into this personal or diplomatic relationship with Vladimir Putin so that the result won't be even more devastating than what we are seeing today? Okay, excellent question. One point that is really marking what uh, China has Chinese policy towards the conflict has been illustrated by is that in addition to the idea of neutrality, in many ways, Beijing is trying to have its cake and eat it too. It is trying to, on one hand, give support for Russia to say that we understand that there are very specific historical reasons behind its actions in Ukraine. But Beijing has also said on more than one occasion that, as we have done traditionally for many decades, we believe in the sanctity of state borders. We believe in the right to states for sovereignty, to maintain their sovereignty, even though the two ideas are very much incompatible in this case. The problem is, first of all, China is going to be facing considerable economic pressure mm. because of its stance. Because it has been very difficult for China, like you could make the argument that, okay, China is going to benefit from the fact that many countries are no longer purchasing Russian oil and gas. But this would be a great concern to Beijing because it does not want to be subject to the same economic sanctions, pressure, ostracism that Russia is facing right now. It can't. The Chinese economy is facing a lot of headwinds now. Now, and any uh, Western sanctions put on China would only make the situation worse. It is also important to note that Ukraine is a major agricultural partner for China. There are very significant concerns about food security in China right now because of the after effects of COVID, because of lockdowns, and because the fact that China is greatly dependent in many ways on imported foodstuffs. One major part of the Belt and Road goes right through Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. And if that particular link were to be severed, that is going to have very significant economic ramifications. And with your discussion about how China is trying to maintain a certain degree of aloofness or detachment from what is happening, this may have been more possible, let's say, 10, 20 years ago. But China has become much more comfortable with pointing out that it is a great power, calling for new models of mm. great power relations with the United States. And one of the facts of life, if you're going to be a great power, is that it involves both rights and responsibilities. Mm. So China does not have the option, like it would have had a few years back, to simply jump off the stage and say, this is not my concern. It cannot kind of maintain, especially under current circumstances, this kind of neutrality policy indefinitely. Now, Professor Mark, I want to um, ask one more question before we move on to the next topic. Let's go back to Vladimir Putin. 
We know that since the war started, and, and in Russia, and especially in the country of um, Ukraine today, that Vladimir Putin not only is targeting the civilians, and not only rolling out the plans militarily towards the people in Ukraine, but also Vladimir Putin building its presence on digital platforms. So in other words, that he's using this cutting-edge technology to to award even take advantage of this social media platforms to suppress the users not only in russia but also the people in ukraine to understand the truth behind the war now again i don't want to make any prediction we are not living in the year of 1945 and we're not dealing with adolf hitler and we're not living in the year of 1972 and we're not dealing with joseph stalin but can we say that today, by understanding Vladimir Putin's behavior, is it fair or even even reasonable to use the word dictatorship to describe his personality? Because, again, on one hand, he's just into this war without any reason, without any logics. Um, but this, on the other hand, if he continued to suppress people, continue to uh, uh, eliminate the possibility of freedom in both countries... Don't you think that he's qualified? I'm sorry, to, as an air quote, he's qualified to be a yeah. dictator at this moment? Yeah, very good points, very good questions. Uh, the first part of it regarding information warfare, disinformation, and suppression of information. This is a major facet of this conflict. And I think that when this conflict is studied in the future, it will be seen as a very significant example of new forms of technological warfare. You have Russia, if you correctly point out, tried to essentially control the narrative, to portray the Ukrainian government as illegitimate, far-right, mm. um, drug dealers, like all kinds of ridiculous uh, claims that have been repeated over and over in the Russian media. You have attempts by uh, Ukraine to work out a counter-narrative. And what is also happening here, and going back to what I said about uh, the serious problems of the Russian military, trying to keep information secret about locations, about movements, about plans of uh, Russian military forces within Ukraine, a lot of it has been leaked. A lot of it has been uh, made available, made public, due to the fact that in many ways, Russia is still kind of thinking 1970s, 1980s in terms of its communication. Um, a few commentators have already referred to this conflict as the first TikTok war. And it's funny, but there's also a grain of truth to it because mm. you're seeing new ways of bringing forward information that cannot be very easily controlled. Now, as for Putin himself and how best to describe his regime, well, as I noted, over the past 20 years, he has systematically removed any and all forms of opposition. He has essentially created a situation, le moi, I am the state. Mm. Like you cannot criticize Putin without criticizing Russia as a whole. And one question which is getting very pressing, especially when we look at the on the ground responses, like the on the street views of the war in Russia, in Russian cities, is, is this message actually uh, resonating, especially with younger populations who are used to, have been used to, Russia being much more globalized, much more able to access international products, international trips, and all of that is gone now. So how much of that is affecting views of the Russian people saying that perhaps the time has come that we need a new direction, that we need a new leader?
So, and this is very difficult to gauge. Like we can speculate because we honestly don't know. And without any kind of information on the ground, we simply can't know. But the fact is Putin has put himself in a very difficult situation now. And even if the fighting were to stop tomorrow, it is going to be an extremely long time before the Russian economy recovers and Russia's reputation recovers. You know, this question might sound very silly, Professor Mark. Do you think that Putin cares? You know, for, for years that we've been discussing, you know, going back to North Korea, we know that uh, even before President Trump, and there were a lot more um, international experts or political scientists believe that Kim Jong-un or the a, a person uh, such as Kim Jong-un does not actually care how the world thinks of him because he believed that you know uh he, the whole family created this uh, this dynasty or the family created this country now going back to Vladimir Putin you know again this question is very silly is do you think that Putin actually cares what the world thinks of him or do, do you think that he actually um cares that how he's going to face the reality or how he's going to uh, face the people in both countries as soon as the war stops that's a good point, and I'm kind of reminded of that quote attributed to uh, Emperor Caligula, uh, let them hate so long as they fear. Mm. I would say that one consideration that Putin has is the fact that he is getting on in years, he is starting to become concerned about his legacy, and it is very well known for people who followed his career over the past few decades, that he saw the collapse of the Soviet Union as a mistake and a terrible tragedy. Mm. And he would very much like to be known uh, regardless of how it is perceived uh, externally, as the one who rebuilt Russia's sphere of influence, who put Russia back as a great power. And I think that is also a major uh, consideration uh, for his actions right now. And I agree, compared to, uh, I would even say compared to China with Xi Jinping, I would not say that uh, the Russian government is that concerned mm. about international opinion, as long as that legacy of restoring Russian greatness, whatever that means, is actually um, actually takes place. Professor Mark, as much as we enjoy this conversation regarding Ukraine and Russia, let's move on to the last part of the conversation. It's about the upcoming election in France. And again, we know that a current leader, Emmanuel Macron, and you know, has been facing brick walls one after another, especially for the people, you know, uh, in the midst of the whole pandemic. Now, this is something that I read this morning, and I want to read it to you and want to get your reaction. It says, five years ago, and I quote, French President Emmanuel Macron was elected on the promise of revitalizing the European Union with new vigor and vision. Arriving at his victory rally with the EU anthem playing and the EU flags flying behind him, he pledged to defend Europe and protect its civilization. Now, Professor Mark, from your perspective, we know that the first round of uh, 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 the, uh, uh, the votes, uh, the results came out and between the two candidates, they were so tight. It was so close. And Macron still took the lead. But given the fact, the condition, that he has not been performing well. So in other words, people in France have been holding protests and rallies towards a, a current leader for, uh, for months, even for years. How do we believe that this is the right person or will continue to shoulder the responsibilities for the country of France? 
Yeah, there's a certain amount of irony here because Macron came into office as sort of the anti-politics candidate. He really wanted to define himself as not being on the traditional left to right spectrum, that the traditional parties, including the socialists and the conservatives, were just simply not representing modern France. Mm. And as soon as he took office, he had to deal with a variety of economic social challenges, not only COVID, but the fact that you have serious economic problems, including inequality, which has started to create a great deal of frustration among many parts of the French public. And the situation that we're seeing now is that the center, the political center within France has almost completely vanished. Mm. That we are seeing a great deal of support, not only for Macron, who is still styles himself as a person of the people rather than as a political figure, but also a considerable amount of additional support for the, uh, for the left, the left candidate came very close to actually becoming the second candidate to make it to the runoff mm. or the far right under Marine Le Pen. So we are really seeing, seeing a great deal of polarization within the French public right now. The other problem is that the situation in Europe as a whole has also become much more difficult now with Brexit, with a lot of concerns about uh, Hungary, about Poland, about the problem that we are seeing a lot of stresses within the European Union, exacerbated by the pandemic, exacerbated by a lot of global uncertainty right now. It is very difficult for any European candidate to be able to maintain support under these kinds of conditions. Well, but you know the people or the leaders such as Emmanuel Macron or even uh, even Boris Johnson, you know, we have seen or we have read a lot more leaders from the European side when they are dealing with international crisis, you know, uh, such as Ukraine and Russia. The countries actually opened up their borders to welcome those people or those refugees coming to the country. Isn't that a sign of positivity or isn't that what the leader is supposed to show? You know, we show uh, integrity and we show careness, we show compassion to the refugees. Doesn't that add to the value to Macron or to someone as Macron? So in other words, if he is actually someone that would describe, you know, generally care about human rights and generally care about, you know, the international community, why is he still facing a criticism domestically and internationally? I would say a few points. Uh, you're right in the sense that, yes, Macron really tried to rework French politics to say, OK, there is a new generation, there is a new mode of thinking, and there is going to be kind of new uh, concepts, if you will, of French politics going forward. Mm. But the fact is, you look at the history of French politics, incumbents always have a very difficult time, especially if there are significant economic challenges. There was some discussion uh, when the Ukraine conflict began and when refugee when the refugee crisis began that France would be in a very uh, significant position to assist. And Macron did try to act as a mediator during the first few weeks of the crisis. The problem, though, is in many ways during the campaign, he became almost too complacent. He held exactly one rally. He really did not uh, feel that uh, Marine Le Pen was that much of a challenger. Mm. The idea was that because of her previous association with Vladimir Putin, that would essentially end her campaign. So there was a great deal of complacency. But as the saying goes, a week is a long time in politics. And Macron found that out the hard way. It is going to be now a challenge, even though there has been a great deal more unity in Europe and within various political quarters about how to stand up to Russia, how to deal with Ukraine. But there's also going to be a considerable amount of economic pressure on France, like its neighbors, because of the fact that Russia is now being placed 
it's under sanctions, and that's going to have a significant hit on the European economy as a whole. Mm. So how Macron will be able to continue to define himself as a person of the people, not of the establishment, that has gotten a lot more difficult now, especially now that a lot of time has passed. Professor Mark, I want to talk about the uh, relationship between China and France under Macron at this moment. So again, we know that Macron is facing this new election, and the uh, uh, the, the next candidate is running so close, uh, rather competitively with Macron. Now, from your perspective, how would you evaluate, or how would you uh, uh, diagnose the relationship between uh, between uh, China and France under Emmanuel Macron in the past few years? Okay, well, under Macron and similar to previous French governments, uh, we see the same kind of balancing act that I can point to both South Korea, to Germany, to others, trying to maintain obviously very strong commitments to the West, to the United States, but recognizing the fact that China is a very significant economic pole and that trade with China simply cannot be dismissed. Mm. Now, what has been happening over the past year, though, has definitely caused a bit of a shakeup of French policy in the Asia-Pacific as a whole. The development of the AUKUS Pact and the fact that France was left out and the fact that France had a very difficult time with Australia as a result of AUKUS may have created a bit of a concern that, okay, where is France's role in the Asia-Pacific going to be? Because, again, France would very much like to maintain good relations with China economically, but it's also under a great deal of pressure from the United States to show the flag, to stand up to China, to say that we are not going to support Chinese expansionism, including, for example, in the South China Sea. Mm. So it's been a balancing act. And if we are going to be seeing a period of economic uncertainty for the next little while, maintaining all of those links is going to be very crucial. So I think there is going to be a considerable rethinking uh, after the election process is over as to where China and East Asia is going to fit within France's foreign policy priorities. You know, Professor Mark, I want to end our conversation with the last question. We started the whole discussion with the country of North Korea, and then we talk about the South Korean election, and we talk about the ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine, and we get in China into the loop, and eventually we talk about uh, this ongoing election, a presidential election in France. Putting everything together, Professor Mark, from your perspective, Again, we're just stepping into nearly the four months of 2022, and we still have a long way to go until the end of the year, but it looks like the whole world is not even ready for any major conflict yet, but naturally has already started a long time ago. So from your perspective, how do you think that we should understand the leadership today under such pandemic or under such globalization? Because every single person who is running for election or re-election is got to be asked or got to face this scrutiny under this globalization, you know, such as democracy, human rights and, you know, fairness or inequality, etc. From your view, how do you think we should understand the word leadership today? Excellent question. And if I was going to answer it in two words, I would say assume nothing. Mm. It has been shown over the past two, three years that a lot of preconceived ideas about leadership domestically and internationally, about how the international system works economically, strategically, politically, a lot of these ideas have been challenged directly. And every leader coming in now has to understand that we are dealing with a very significant shift 
in how these ideas are playing themselves out. Talking about globalization, it's been very easy for some pundits to say, well, we're seeing the end of globalization, but it's not quite that simple. We have seen many examples of how the global supply chain has vulnerabilities and they simply cannot be ignored or dealt with uh, in an overnight type situation. We have seen many examples of how preconceived ideas about multilateralism and cooperation simply cannot be uh, taken for granted. And for all the discussion about, well, it's very easy to simply cut Russia out of the global economy hmm. uh, in the way of sanctions and various other pressures, we are going to be seeing results of that. If you are looking at energy, if you are looking at various types of trade, it simply cannot be done without any kind of significant aftershocks to the rest of the world. So any new leader coming in will have to understand that we are dealing with a situation where a lot of the rules are not applying anymore. And the ability to adjust to these new realities very quickly, I think, is going to be a very important important component for any leaders uh, in the near future. Now, one more question, uh, Professor Mark, before letting you go. Do you think that the world today, now after seeing everything or after going through everything today, for, for the country of the United States, is it ready to invite a person like Donald Trump back to the political stage? It's an excellent question. Uh, we are, first of all, I think it's safe to say that uh, Donald Trump is certainly not finished with mm. uh, politics in general. There's still a lot of discussion that he might run again. There has been a lot of debate about how many of these uh, international situations that we've been talking about, including the Russia-Ukraine conflict and how to deal with China and with North Korea, would be affected if we see either Trump or a Trumpist presidential candidate come to power. And this is something which is going to have to be addressed very soon. The midterm elections are coming up. We could That's be right. seeing a shift in who takes the Senate and who takes the House. We could be seeing a lot more obstructionism. And we could be seeing a considerable shift in how the United States, which has been trying to reintroduce itself to global affairs, it is understandable that all of that may go into reverse in two years. So I think it is definitely something that is on the minds of many leaders, including here in Europe and I'd say in other parts of the world as well. You know, Professor Mark, I think at the end of the day, I agree with what you just said. You know, for any upcoming leaders or new leaders for any other countries, just two words, assume nothing. Well, Professor Mark teaches in political science and including international relations, comparative politics, and his current research interests include China, such as domestic and international politics, and East Asia countries include Japan, Korea, Southeast Asia, Pacific Islands. Again, Professor Mark, it's always been a pleasure of speaking with you, and thank you so much for taking your time to join our show and answer all these questions. And again, I wish we have all the time of the year because that such conversation would never end. Again, thank you.